All right, let's turn to Genesis 21. We are uh, kind of in the middle of this chapter. Or maybe not quite the middle, but we're started on this story. Uh, <coughs> we started, <coughs> excuse me, last week. And we had, uh, we looked at uh, that long-awaited birth of the, uh, of the heir, the son of the promise, uh, Isaac. And uh, the story associated with that, and we'll pick up the story uh, in verse 8 and, and look at, uh, at the incident that follows involving, uh, involving Ishmael and Hagar uh, today. But uh, let's just take a moment and think back on last week and try and recall what did we talk about last week. Okay. 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 So we identified several themes that come up uh, uh, come up in this passage, and and part of that is because this is really kind of a climax event in one sense uh, here in these few verses. So there are several themes. She mentioned uh, <coughs> she mentioned a couple of them. One was the uh, the the name Sarah's name comes up repeatedly. Uh, she talked about the issue of sonship. Uh, there were a couple other themes that pop out in this chapter. Remember what they are? Or in this section of the chapter? Okay. The role of God's Word and God's promise in the events that are unfolding. What else? Yeah. Well, before we leave God's Word, I really like what she said about Okay. Okay. When when God when God says something, that's the new reality. <laughs> that's the way things are. And it may take 25 years before we can actually lay our hands on it and touch it, but it is the new reality as soon as He speaks it. So, what else? Laughter. Okay. What's this thing about laughter? How does that come up? Okay. <laughs> His name means laughter. Why? Why does God want this heir of the promise to be named laughter? Okay. Because there's a there's an element of just overwhelming surprise and pleasure and joy that comes from having this son born uh, partly because he's the son of the promise he's this promised heir partly because they have waited so many 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 years uh, for it to be fulfilled and so finally it is fulfilled and and there's just tremendous pleasure in that what else there's a little irony in this she laughed oh no I didn't yeah 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 so there's, yeah. So there's there's actually uh, different aspects of laughter associated with Isaac. There's the joy that we encounter here in these verses, 
But back in, in chapter uh, 17, we have Abraham laughing when he first hears about uh, the fact he's going to have a son when he's 100 years old. And that struck him as a little something to laugh about. And we, it's not clear in the case of Abraham whether or not it's a, a, an incident of incredulity on his part or, or, or simple, the simple joy. I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, there in chapter 17. But in chapter 18, we have Sarah last when she hears about it. And in her case, it really is clearly a case of incredulity. She's just, you know, this can't be, you know, who, who's, you know, who do you think you're kidding here? I'm 89 years old and you're talking about me having a baby. Uh, so, uh, so in her case, it was a case of incredulity. And today, uh, in our lesson today, we're going to see another example of laughter associated with Isaac. So, so it's just kind of a theme that's associated with his life and, and all the different aspects of it, the unbelief, the incredulity, the joy, the pleasure, and as we'll see uh, today, even the persecution. So it's, uh, uh, it, it, it has a lot of different aspects to it. What else? So we talked about the fact that that the faith and the faithfulness of the people who live in the shadows is as important as the faith and faithfulness of the people who are out in the limelight. <laughs> we think of Abraham and we think how important his faith was, but this would not have happened had Sarah, who for most of the story, as we said, is kind of behind the scenes. She's, she's referred to, but she really isn't dominant in the story until we get to chapter 16 and that's not a very complimentary situation there and then we come to chapter 21 and once again she's in the forefront but this time in a very positive way but but she's a, she's, a, she's an individual who lives her life like most of us who live our lives which is behind the scenes uh, backstage or behind the curtain so to speak and and yet our faith and our faithfulness is important is as important to the work that God is doing and the thing that God is accomplishing, as it is for the great religious leaders, the people that we think of and the people that the spotlight is on and we look at them and we go, well, it's really important that they obey God and it's really important that they believe God and that they trust God, but, but I, can, I can slack off because I'm not important. Thankfully, Sarah did not slack off that she remained, uh, she remained faithful and, and this is the result. Anything else? Okay, and that's also a theme that comes out in this passage is, is this is an impossibility. What has happened here, what we have read about here is not just an unusual event, but it is a miraculous event. Okay, that God has supernaturally intervened here uh, because of Abraham's faith and because and by uh, Sarah's faith, he has supernaturally intervened and given her the ability to conceive and they have had a miraculous child. Okay, and that's very important, and we'll see that how important that is as we go forward today. That Isaac Isaac is not just an unusual child; it's not just a you know kind of an amazing set of circumstances here. But he really is a miraculous child, who is the result of the promise of God and the faith of God's faithful people. Okay, anything else? Uh, 
Okay. Well, let's pick the story up then in uh, in verse eight, and uh, let's read down through verse twenty-one, and and we'll talk about this passage that we're going to look at today. This is a this is a passage. Uh, it seems a little kind of strange, and we I think as we read this to some degree, we're probably a little uncomfortable with it. Uh, but this really is a passage that is loaded with theological significance, so we really want to take time to understand it. And it is a passage in which, in which once again, God puts a great deal of emphasis, as He began doing back in Genesis chapter 3, puts a great deal of emphasis on this distinction between two separate seeds. And uh, so this is a very important passage for us to be familiar with. So it says, Now Sarah... Excuse me, verse 8. Uh, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because he, excuse me, because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad uh, a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay? And that's, uh, that's all we'll hear about Ishmael for a while before we... Uh, We'll return to look briefly at him down the road. But uh, we have this uh, feast for uh, Isaac. I've got to keep Isaac and Ishmael straight here. I'll probably be stumbling over their names. They're so similar. But um, we have this feast uh, for Isaac that Abraham has prepared on the day of his weaning. Now, Typically, the day of a child's weaning would be somewhere between two to three years of age, somewhere in that time frame, okay, uh, in this culture, in this time period. Uh, so Isaac is by this point two or three years old, and it comes the time of his weaning, and, and Abraham throws this great party for him, this great feast, okay? And you can imagine what it was like. You know, Abraham's got all these hundreds of servants and, and, and household members and slaves and, you know, people to do all kinds of things for him. And he 
has all these people in and they have this great feast and you can imagine the celebrating and the drinking and the and and the eating and the you know and the singing and all the things that are going on. And it is apparently in the context of this great feast and this great celebration of the the weaning of this heir of the promise that that Sarah, as she's watching everything that's going on, what does she see? Pardon? She sees Ishmael. And what particularly catches her attention about Ishmael? He's mocking. Okay. Now, it really isn't clear exactly what he's doing here. Uh, it is interesting, though, that as I've mentioned a couple times before, the word that's used here has the same root to it as Isaac's name. Okay, so it has this root of laughter to it. And it can be actually, uh, it can be interpreted in a fairly benign way. It can, it can be interpreted or translated in a way that refers to just playing or having fun together or whatever. Okay, but it also can be translated in a way that is to some degree more uh, sinister. And that's obviously what's going on here <laughs> is that there's something Something somewhat sinister in, in Ishmael's laughter uh, is obvious by the fact that by the fact of the way that Sarah responds. She's obviously it's obvious here that Ishmael is not simply playing with Isaac or, or or doing something that's fairly benign or innocent here, but he's doing something that alarms Sarah sufficiently that she wants the child and his mother driven out of the household, <coughs> excuse me, which, of course, in that culture and in that climate, in that part of the world would would be a very dangerous thing to do. OK, so it's very clear from that that there's something sinister going on. And also, when we get into the New Testament in Galatians chapter four, Paul refers to this incident and he talks about uh, he doesn't name him by name, but he talks about Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Okay, so whatever is going on here, it's a fair. There, there's something sinister going on, and and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, consider that we need to know exactly what he was doing or exactly what he was saying. But it is it is clear that that in some way he is he is making fun of, or he is mocking, or he is having some uh, uh, some pleasure at Isaac's expense. Okay. Now, when you think about it, we remember that that <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I don't know what's getting in my throat today. We remember that Ishmael was born about 13 years before uh, Abraham was notified that he would have a child in a year uh, through Sarah. OK, so that means that Isaac was about 14 years of age. Excuse me. Ishmael was about 14 years of age when Isaac was born. Okay, which means now at this point, he's about 16 or 17. Okay, so he's a teenager. (laughs) Okay, that puts everything in an interesting context, doesn't it? We have a teenager who is uh, mocking or laughing at his little baby brother, half brother, Isaac. Okay, in the context of this feast, you know, and we might be inclined to just kind of brush it off at this point. We we kind of know how teenagers are, right? Uh, they can't 
mistake. Excuse me. Well, but, he, but it, in the passage, it continually refers to him as a lad and a boy and a child. OK, so uh, so certainly they were more mature or expected to be more mature in that culture than we do today. We expect our teenagers to act like five year olds today. Uh, but uh, so certainly he would he would be more mature, but still within the context of the passage, he's re, he's referred to as being. Uh, being still fairly young, okay? And when you think that people live to be 130 and 140 or whatever, he's, he really is still pretty green behind the ears. But, but on the other hand, it's very clear he should have known better, okay? But it is not surprising to us to find a young person who has this sense or this feeling of superiority. Young people just kind of tend to be that way. I don't know if you've noticed that, but... But uh, uh, I, I think I hope I've gained a little bit of humility over the last 40 years or so. But I kind of remember back when I was a young person, when I was in my teens and in my 20s, it was very easy for me to be critical of others. It was very easy. It still is, unfortunately. But it was even easier for me to be critical of others. It was very easy for me to be judgmental of others. It was very easy for me to laugh at others. Okay, when they were a little different or when there was something I didn't think was exactly right about them or whatever. Okay. And, and I don't think the Lord was any more pleased with it when I did it uh, uh, 20, 40, 45 years ago uh, than he was with Ishmael when Ishmael did it uh, with Isaac. But there's more at stake here, as we'll see here in just a minute. Okay. But so, so Ishmael is, is having some fun at Isaac's expense. And apparently it's some kind of mocking. As I said, uh, Paul calls it, calls it uh, persecution. So apparently it was, uh, it was fairly significant. And Sarah sees this and, and of course, uh, she reacts. Uh, she goes to her husband. She goes to Abraham. And uh, she says to Abraham... Uh, uh, she says, "Drive out this maid and her son, and the son of the uh, excuse me. Drive out the maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac." Okay, so so she goes to Abraham, and she says to Abraham, "Get rid of this woman and get rid of her son." Okay, and when we read that, it's very easy for us to to be a little shocked and appalled at this point, right? We kind of go, whoa, what is this thing with Sarah? Okay. Not really, because if you think that Sarah thinks her son's life is going to be in danger, and jealousy is the real, I mean, you almost have to wonder, if Ishmael going to be jealous. Okay, okay, well, I, I agree. But it's interesting that you kind of brought up kind of two issues here, which I think is, which I think we, we do need to think about with Sarah, is that is that I that I think we see in Sarah's reaction here mixed motives, okay? And when I say mixed motives, I really mean mixed motives. I think she has here, as we'll see in a minute, some very lofty ideals, and she has some very lofty reasons why she goes to her husband and tells her husband you need to get rid of this woman and you need to get rid of her son. Okay? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, she has these very lofty ideals and these very lofty reasons and these very honorable reasons for what she tells Abraham she wants him to do. 
But I assume she also has all these other things. <laughs> she has the jealousy. She has the fear. She has all these other things that are mixed in that are not perhaps uh, so lofty. Okay, They are perhaps some baser motives. And it's very easy to read the story here and look at Sarah and think she's being pettyish and, and, and uh, paranoid and all that sort of thing. Uh, but... And and I suspect that probably when she first went to Abraham, that that might have been Abraham's initial reaction. And and there's a reason why I think that might have been Abraham's initial reaction, that he thought his wife was being perhaps a little overboard here. And it says he was greatly distressed by by what she asked. And and the idea there of her greatly distressed, of him being greatly distressed, is he, he really thought, this is a really evil situation that I now face. These are really evil circumstances that I now face, that I am being asked by my wife and the mother of my new son to expel this other son of mine and his mother. And uh, so that's his reaction. Well, what's interesting here is that as we come clear, as we look at the passage, Somebody's stolen my clock, so I'll have to remember to watch my watch here. Uh, as, as we look at the passage, it, it will become clear that, that the, the good motives, the good reasons that Sarah has for what she tells Abraham she wants him to do. Uh, I, want, I keep wanting to say, ask Abraham, but she doesn't really ask him. She says, just do this, Abraham. Okay. The, the good motives that she has... Uh, really represent what's really at stake in this whole thing. Okay. Which is why when Abraham is so deeply troubled by it that God tells him he needs to listen to his wife. Because his wife really sees the issues clearly. What is striking to me here is that Abraham does not. Okay. And, and the reason Abraham does not, you'll notice that it says that Abraham was greatly distressed uh, by the matter because of his son. In other words, Abraham's love for Ishmael, and that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that he loves his son. It's a good thing that he loves Ishmael. Okay. But that his, that his love for Ishmael is a love which has obscured to his vision or obscured to his view the greater issues that are at stake. Okay. So what Abraham is concerned about is he's concerned about his son. He's concerned about the well-being of his son Ishmael. And he loves his son and he cares for his son. And that's all well and good. But he has allowed that sentiment to obscure the reality of what God said he wants to do and what God plans to do. And it's really obscured the covenant. And it's obscured the promise. Okay, And so... What we have here is, while I don't necessarily think that that uh, there was anything life-threatening in what uh, uh, Ishmael was doing, there was a threat there. And the threat pertained to the inheritance. And the issue with, that Sarah brings up with Abraham is, is again, and I don't know, there may have been some, some concern for the life of Isaac, but the issue that she brings up with Abraham is what? The issue of what? The inheritance, okay? She says, I don't want him sharing the inheritance. He's not going to share the inheritance with my son, okay? And so what she perceives is she sees this older brother, older by 13 or 14 years, okay? So she sees this older brother 
who has this contempt for the son of the promise, for the son of the for this for the son of the inheritance. Okay, she sees this contempt. And as we go forward in the story of Genesis, we're going to see how this competition between brothers over the inheritance can get pretty intense. We're going to see that with Esau and Jacob, right? And we're going to see how much tension that causes. Okay. So what Sarah is concerned about here is she's concerned that the inheritance has been promised to Isaac by God. And, there, and that what's in, what's in jeopardy here is that some of that inheritance might go to Ishmael. Now, we might think that she's being very selfish and she's being very petty when she wants all of the inheritance to go to Isaac. But she's not. I mean, there may have been some of that in her motive. But the issue is that God said that the inheritance was to go to Isaac. And what she perceives here is an older brother who clearly has contempt for the heir, for the, uh, heir of the promise. And she's concerned that once she's dead and gone and off the scene and Abraham's dead and gone and off the scene, that this guy, Ishmael, is going to somehow manipulate circumstances and the situation and take advantage of his younger brother and steal some of the inheritance. And she says, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to happen. And so she goes to her husband and she says, uh, in, in the vernacular of today, get rid of them. Okay. Now, like I said, that's a very dangerous thing to do. We've already seen Sarah out on her own at one point. Uh, or, excuse me, Hagar out on her own at one point back in chapter 16. And we saw how dangerous that can be. Okay. But, but what's at stake here is the question of whether or not the promise of God is going to be fulfilled in Isaac as God said it would be. And that is her concern. And she is concerned now that this uh, young man, Ishmael, who is now approaching, certainly approaching adulthood, if he isn't already there, as, as he's approaching adulthood, is going to somehow manipulate the circumstances and gain some of the inheritance. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I just think that the safety of your son would be your primary concern. I do think inheritance, but I think another one's concern with the safety of your son. Could have been. Could have been. That's when mothers become like theirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what. But what's so striking to me here is that Sarah sees this and Abraham doesn't. Okay. And <laughs> why did she look at you when she said that, Mike? <laughs> and and what strikes me here is about that is that is that Abraham's sentiment, if you will, and it's not a bad sentiment, it's a good thing, his love for Ishmael, okay. But that his sentiment clouds his judgment and that he's not able to see what's really at stake here. Now, there really are some very profound issues at stake here. Okay. And 
And just to consider that or think about that, let's flip over to the New Testament a little bit and think about the theological implications of what's going on here. Okay? Turn with me to Romans chapter uh, 9. And, uh, well, no, let's go to Galatians 4. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. And, and we'll get some sense in Galatians chapter 4 of what's at stake here. Now, we have to remember, as we said, Isaac is a miraculous birth. Isaac is a miraculous birth. He's a miraculous child. Ishmael, on the other hand, is not. I mean, all children are miracles. You know, we think of them as miracles. But they're, they're a product of very natural processes, okay? And Ishmael is a product of a very natural process. Okay? Isaac, on the other hand, is the product of the natural processes being reversed by the power and promise of God. Those are two entirely different circumstances, okay? And so when we get to Galatians chapter 4, Paul compares uh, these two individuals and the implications of their lives. So he says uh, in verse 21, and he's talking to the Galatians because uh, somebody, people had come to Galatia or there were people in the Galatian church or in Galatia who were trying to get the Galatians to go back and adapt adopt the old Jewish laws and rules again and live under the whole Jewish law. And, and Paul is arguing very strongly, very strongly about how evil that would be to do. And as he makes his argument in verse 21, he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Yeah, that's the point I was just making. He was born. There was nothing supernatural in his birth. He was just born by people doing what people do. Okay. And the son by the free woman through the promise. Okay. Now, there's a distinction there. Ishmael was born, as he says, uh, by the flesh, just by people being people. Okay. But Isaac was born by the promise, meaning that Sarah and Abraham had done what people do for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years, and they had never had a child. But now they have a child by the promise. Okay? So Ishmael is born by the flesh, but Isaac is born by the promise of God. Okay? This is alleg this is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is, rejo it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear, Break forth and shout, you who do not, who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than uh, than of the one who has a husband. You see, you see what he's saying there so clearly. 
He's saying you've got these people over here who have children, you know, and they've got husbands and everything's well and good. And then you've got the barren woman. But the barren woman rejoices because she bears children and her descendants are going to be more than the descendants of everybody else. Why? Clearly because of God's miraculous intervention. Okay? And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. You see where this begins to have significance to us? He's writing to, he's writing to us in the church, right? And he's saying that we are, like Isaac, children of the promise. What does that mean? That we are the children of God by miraculous birth. That God has done a miraculous thing, a supernatural thing, that has changed us from children of wrath to children of the promise. Okay? But what does Scripture say? Cast off the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. So Paul is trying to make this distinction between us who are, who are saved, who are redeemed by the, by the miraculous supernatural power of a redeeming God. We have been redeemed and we have been saved and we are now children of the free woman, so to speak. We're, we're children of the new Jerusalem as opposed to uh, children of the old Jerusalem, which corresponds, he says, to Sinai, which corresponds to the law. What he's saying is you're free, folks. You're not under the law. You don't have to. You're, you can't come to God through the law. You can only come to God through this miraculous supernatural birth. And that's what makes you children of the free woman. Okay. And then he says this other thing. He says, cast off the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. You see what's at stake here in Galatians chapter 4 and what's at stake clear back in Genesis chapter 21 is that the, the, the promised inheritance goes exclusively to the son of the free woman. That the son of the bondwoman gets none of the inheritance. And it's imperative in this situation, clear back in Genesis chapter 21, when it becomes, when, when it is thrown in question, at least in Sarah's mind, when there is some question involved as to whether or not Ishmael will get any part of the inheritance, it's imperative to her, because it's imperative to God, that Ishmael get none of the inheritance that all of the inheritance goes to the son of the free woman. Okay. Now, we may not like that. You know, we may think, well, that's not fair. You know, so we, may have all, we may have our arguments with that. But what is clear is that God has determined that the seed of the woman, i.e. Eve, will be the recipient of the heir, of the inheritance and not the seed of the serpent. This is that, that contrast that was drawn for us clear back in Genesis chapter 3. That there's the seed of the woman, i.e. the seed of Eve, the seed of the promise, those who walk by faith, those who live by faith, and there's the seed of the serpent who corresponds to the seed of the bondwoman. Okay. And the seed of the serpent lives by the flesh. The seed of the serpent lives not by faith, but by sight. And God says the inheritance goes only to the seed 
of the free woman. Now, this isn't a very popular theology. People don't like this. And there are many people who even who profess to be Christians who don't like this. And they say, well, you know, we're all children of God. Everybody's a child of God. You know. And, you know, you know, I want to concede that to a little bit. I mean, to some degree, we're all created by God and, you know, we have his breath in us and that sort of thing. But the question is, are we all the children of God? Well, let me show you something. Turn over to Hebrews uh, chapter 11. And, and he says something very interesting. Uh, again, talking about this same situation back in chapter 21 of Genesis. Actually, uh, actually here he's talking about, uh, about the incident later when Abraham offers uh, Isaac as his son. Uh, but he does refer or allude back to chapter 21 in Genesis, beginning in verse 17. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up what? His only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants will be called. His only begotten son. Wait a minute. He had a son before that, didn't he? What's going on here? Well, keep your finger there in Hebrews and turn over to Romans chapter 9. See if I can find the verse here. Uh, Okay, now I lost it. Um, let me see if I can find it here. It's probably in my notes here somewhere. Uh, verse 8. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, yeah, there we go. Thanks. Uh, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay, talking about uh, uh, Jacob there. Nor are all the children... Uh, nor, all they, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So Paul says, listen, everybody who's descended from Abraham is not considered to be a child of the promise. And that's why whoever writes Hebrews in writing Hebrews calls Isaac his only begotten son. As far as God is concerned, as far as the promise is concerned. Now, yes, God does consider Ishmael to be Abraham's son and he calls him Abraham's son. But as, but as far as God is concerned spiritually, only Isaac is Abraham's son. So that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews calls Isaac his only begotten son. So that the spiritual inheritance goes only to the only son, the only heir, the heir of the promise. In verse 14, it deals with our immediate There's no injustice to God. Yeah, okay. And, and there isn't because that is available to all. Okay, but yeah. Over in uh, this chapter, chapter twenty-two of Genesis, when 
Isaac is getting offered, uh, Abraham's offering up Isaac. Uh, God tells him, uh, you know, I know you've done, I know that you fear God that you have not withheld your son. Your the only son. son. Good. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's right. We'll see that when we get there. He calls in his only son. Okay. What is God telling us here? He's telling us that the promise of God, the inheritance, goes only to the children of faith. Right? So we can, you know, it, we can be like Abraham and we can be very sentimental about things and we can say, well, everybody's a child of God and everybody goes to heaven. But not everybody goes to heaven. And so we see clear, very clearly, clear back here in Genesis, that not everybody goes to heaven. Not everybody gets the inheritance. But only those who are born of the free woman. And so this is a very, obviously a very important theological point. We see three places here in the New Testament where it comes up. In Romans, in Galatians, and in Hebrews. It comes up again and again and again. It's a very important point that God wants us to understand that the inheritance goes only to the heir. To the promised heir. To the one who is born miraculously and supernaturally. Not one who is born according to the flesh. And so while it's all nice, sounds all very nice and good to say we're all the children of God, the fact is we're not all the children of God. But only those who are born of the Spirit are the children of God. Okay? And so this is the issue that's at stake. This is what, and I don't think Sarah understood all of this, and, and, and even with what Sarah did understand of the promises of God and the promise that God had given to her husband and the promise that God had given to her, even with what she did understand, she had all these other emotions and feelings mixed in with that. But what's significant to me is God isn't worried about her mixed motives. God honors her good motives. Okay? God doesn't say about Sarah, well, just, you know, Sarah's motives are mixed, so, you know, don't listen to her. But rather, he tells her husband to listen to her. Now, what's interesting is, when we were back in chapter 16, Sarah came to Abraham with a suggestion, right? And what was Abraham's mistake? He listened to his wife, okay? And... And, you know, as incredible as it may seem, some people point to that passage and tell husbands that they really shouldn't listen to their wives. You know? Well, now we have the flip side of it, don't we? We have Abraham now inclined not to listen to his wife. But his wife is speaking in accord with the promise of God. His wife is speaking in accordance with faith with what God has promised and with what God has said. And God says to Abraham, as troubling as it is to him, God says to Abraham, whatever she says, you listen to her. Why? Because she's speaking from faith. And as a sidelight here, we learn a little bit here about headship in the home, don't we? Headship in the home is not not listening to your wife and it's not listening to your wife. Headship in the home is discerning. Is discerning whether or not those for whom I am responsible in my home are speaking from faith. 
And if they are not speaking from faith, as in chapter 16, I should not be swayed by that. But if they are speaking from faith, as in chapter 21, even if it goes against everything in my being, I should listen. That's headship. Okay? And, and so Abraham, thankfully, he listens to his wife. Now, you'll notice it says he was greatly distressed. But then when God comes and speaks to him, what's the first thing God says to him? Don't be distressed. Okay. Now, let's stop and think about it. Why is Abraham distressed? Okay. He's his son, but he's greatly distressed. This is a really evil thing. Now, my, you know, my children have all grown up and left home. I love them and it hurts, but I'm not greatly distressed like some evil thing is happening. Why is he so greatly distressed? Okay. Okay. He's driving them out. I told my daughter, don't come back home. <laughs> when she packed her bags and left for Wichita, I said, I don't want to see you back in this house. <laughs> it was all said good naturedly. <laughs> but she understood. I expected her to grow up and live on her own. <laughs> Pardon? No, she agreed. She agreed. She's a, she's a big woman now. She lit, I mean, she's had five years of college and lived in our home for five years of college. She was ready to move on. So, forgive me if you listen to this tape, Gabriel. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, he's, he, he's pushing her out. Okay, that's a factor. But, but why is he so distressed? Okay, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous world out there. It's going to be this woman and her young son, or teenage son, and they're out there all on their own, and it's a desert, and it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous world out there. Okay? So, wouldn't you be distressed? I mean, you're pushing, you're pushing them out there to die. You're giving them a bag of water and a, some food to eat and shoving them out the door because God told you to. Wouldn't you be distressed? So then why does God say, do not be distressed? How does Abraham know that? God told him. God had promised long ago. Tom? If he has all this, uh, all these uh, animals and stuff, why didn't, he, why didn't he just give her an entourage and, uh, and all this because, because that's Isaac's inheritance. That's all of that is Isaac's inheritance. I know, it's hard to understand, isn't it? <laughs> well, apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. Uh, yes, Rick. Well, she fled once before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, I think it's quite clear. He has given to both Abraham and Hagar a promise that Ishmael would be a great nation. That's God's promise. Yeah, here. There's a question in my mind. He's also promised Isaac to be a great nation. And that God will bless, him, bless all nations through him. So what's says so worth that? She is... Uh, I'm not... I'm not sure about your, the answer to that question, uh, but I do think that it's very 
it's very clear that from a human perspective, even with the promise, how that's all going to materialize and whether or not that inheritance is going to be preserved is is very much how that inheritance is going to be preserved for her son is very much open for question. In other words, that doesn't mean because the inheritance is hers does not mean that she doesn't have some human res- uh, or is his does not mean that there's not some human responsibility involved in it. That's what that's what my question. It seems like we always have to deal with what are we going to do about that song. Yes. Our yes. 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 But in this case, God is being very specific to Abraham. And oftentimes when we're wrestling with how, you know, what is my obligation or responsibility to the promise of God, I'm not getting voices out of heaven. Okay. But Abraham gets a, gets a voice out of heaven, gets a dream or whatever, and God says specifically to him, you listen to your wife. She's, her words are from me. She's speaking from me. You listen to her and don't be distressed because I'm going to make of him a great nation. And so Abraham is thus empowered or enabled to do what God asks because he is reminded of the promise. And once again, remembering the promise, he goes, okay, I'm sending them out and this looks very dangerous, but I know God's going to take care of them. So he knows he's acting in concert with God's promise because God has specifically told him exactly what he should do. And God's saying to him, I'm going to take care of him. So he sends him out. Okay. And so it seems to us a harsh thing for Abraham to do, but it's not a harsh thing because Abraham knows that Ishmael is going to be cared for and become a great nation. So on the same vein here of the older brother versus the younger, we just go back to the Cain and Abel. Yeah. The younger brother, so they're in the mind that, hey, this is, you know, I'm the only one left. Yeah. Those same things here. Yeah, sure. Those things could be there. Yeah, sure. Which which goes to Ginger's point earlier. Sure. Yeah. One reason it might have been so hard to think about is not good if he's leaving home, like our context, kids leave home, but they're still part of the family, yeah. This is almost like disinheriting Absolutely. him or renouncing him as a son. Yes. Keeps saying, now Isaac's your only son, so I think he knew that, you know, I'm just kind of getting rid of my son. I won't yeah. see him again. Yeah. And that was a hard part. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. There was still some continuous. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I know you talked about this, and it's hard for me to understand why God made this right now. Why? Why? If we're able to become a child of the Then you've got another son who is now another nation, and you look at the history of that, and you just think, uh, I think there's two reasons there uh, that come to my mind. There may be others. Uh, but one reason is God's a merciful and gracious God, and this was Abraham's son. So even though he was born of the flesh, even though he was born outside of the context of the promise, he was still Abraham's son, and God had made a promise to Abraham, and God just said, well, I'm going to do this for Ishmael too. That's just God's mercy. Another thing we have to remember goes clear back to the garden. Why did God put mankind on the earth in the first place? He knew what was going to happen. It's because God wants a vast host of people to worship and enjoy Him forever. And even from the descendants of Ishmael, there will be millions in heaven 
who will be worshiping and enjoying him forever, and that's part of his intention. Yes. Of course, there's a limit that comes later in the story, is that Abraham has fifteen children. Uh, yes, yes. And they're, they're but, uh, but they just paid off and it doesn't That's true. Yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, basically, the same as as, uh, as Ishmael was. And there again, it's the same principle. They are sons of the flesh. That is, they're sons just by the normal product of how the flesh works. Okay, But Isaac stands unique. Why? Because Isaac is a miraculous child as a result of the promise of God. That God has said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you a child. And through this one child, not through all of them, but through this one child, your seed shall be named. So when we think of the descendants of Abraham today, who do we think of? We think of the Jews. We think of Isaac. We think of those that can be traced through Isaac. Now, there are a lot of other descendants of Abraham out there. We have no idea who they are. There are some who claim to be the descendants of Abraham, but they can't prove it. There's only one people out there who can prove they are the descendants of Abraham, and it's the Jews. And they trace back through Isaac according to the promise of God. Okay. Well, my dad had a, had an expression for that. He says some people fall in the creek and they come up with their pockets full of fish. <laughs> God let Abraham go to sleep over there beside the, beside the divided animals and God himself traversed the bloody alley. You know, it's just God saying, I'm going to do this. I love you. You're mine. You're my friend. And I'm going to do this. And, and he just does it. You know, and, 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 and when it's all said and done then, you know, what should be our response? One of the tragedies of the, of the Jewish people in their history is that they became proud and that they thought that there was, there was something in them that merited all this favor from God. And, and God is saying, no, it's not you. It's me. It's all me. I did it. And I love you. And I, and I poured my grace on you. And, 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 and you, have no, you can't take any credit for yourself. Well, so he sends them out and they go out. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael, they go out and they wander around in Beersheba, in the wilderness of Beersheba. And pretty soon the water runs out. Okay? And so they're dying. They think they're dying. Okay? So she leaves her son under a bush and she goes off a ways away because she can't stand to see her son die. You know, it's a very pathetic scene, very sorrowful scene. Okay? And she goes over there and she's 
and she's crying. And then, and then God, it says, he, he, hears, uh, he hears Ishmael crying there under the bush. But he goes to Sarah. He doesn't go to Ishmael. He goes to Sarah. Excuse me. Hagar. Excuse me. He goes to Hagar. Okay. And what does he say to Hagar? What's the matter with you? Well, that doesn't sound very sweet and gentle, does it? <laughs> she has been down this road before. He comes to her and he says, What's the matter with you? Why does he respond to her that way? Because she knows her son is not going to die. She has the same promise Abraham has. Remember that profound spiritual experience she had with God the last time she was out in the desert by herself? And she goes, This is the God who sees me. Because God had promised her she was going to, the child in her was going to be this great nation and going to have all these descendants and everything. She had the promise of God, but she'd lost sight of that. And so now she thinks her son is going to die. And God says, What are you doing sitting here licking your own wounds? Get over there and take care of your boy. That's what he's saying. Arise! Go lift him up. Hold his hand. I'm going to make a great nation of him. Why are you over here? Well, the reason she's over here is because she lost sight of the promise of God. And when she lost sight of the promise of God, what did she do? She went and had a pity party. And she quit ministering to the one she was responsible to minister to. Does that sound like anybody you know? Sounds like somebody I know. We lose sight of God's word. We lose sight of God's promise. We lose sight of God's purposes. And what's the first thing we do? We start to neglect our responsibility to others and we go over and start feeling sorry for ourselves. And God comes to us and He says, You know better than this. Here's my promise. Remember my promise. Now get up out of your little pity party and get busy taking care of the people you are responsible to take care of. I'd rather sit around and have a pity party all day long. You know, just feel sorry for myself because life is so hard. And, I, you know. and God says to me, He says, Rick, what's wrong with you? You've forgotten the promise of God. And it is interesting that having forgotten the promise of God, she's wandering around in Beersheba dying of thirst. You know what Beersheba means? We'll find out next week. <laughs> Beersheba means a well. She's wandering around in a land with water, dying of thirst, because she's lost sight of the promise of God. Does that sound like anybody you know? So easy to do, isn't it? We lose sight of the promise of God and we just die of thirst, and there's spiritual refreshment all around us but we lose sight of that. And we end up sitting out there in that baking hot Oklahoma sun just going, oh, I feel so sorry for me. I'm just so miserable and life is so miserable. And God's saying, Rick, what's the matter with you? Won't you remember my promise? Open your eyes and look. Right over there is a well of water. Okay? Well, we'll go on with the story next week.